so good to be together and just get to worship together this morning. Uh, here in a moment, uh, TA is gonna come up and, and teach us from 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, we'll open God's word together. But you can go ahead and have a seat. Um, this morning's message, this passage, speaks primarily to those of us who are married. But at the outset, I just wanna let you know that there's application and relevance here for us all. Uh, we all, of course, know people who are married and uh, many of us have been affected by the decision uh, to, to divorce a spouse. And so no matter what your life stage here this morning, whether you're single, whether you're pursuing marriage or newly married, uh, whether you've been married for a long time and maybe your, your marriage is great, maybe it's on the rocks, maybe you're separated. There is something in God's word for us this morning, no matter where we're at. And I will say too, there's, there's something here at Watermark within our body, a ministry, no matter your life stage as well. If you're pursuing marriage, we have Merge to, to help you process and pray and think seriously about the decision that you're making. If you're married and whether your, your marriage is on life support or even if you just want it to go from a six to a nine, we have Reengage, where you can spend intentional time together with your spouse in a small group. And if you're living with the effects of divorce right now, we have divorce care. We would love to come alongside you and help you regardless of the season that you're in. More importantly than having a ministry, we have many men and women who are ready to come alongside you and walk with you wherever you're at. The truth is in 1 Corinthians 7, there are some tough passages for some of us, depending on our life stage. And we want you to know at the outset, we have been praying and will continue praying that what you experience during this message isn't shame. You see, through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, everything in our past is forgiven if we're a child of God. And through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, we have the strength to take that next step of faithfulness today. God is with us. God is with you here this morning. And our prayer is that we're each able just to listen to what God is gonna say to each of us here today. And so I'm going to read uh, the first 16 verses that T.A. is gonna walk us through and then I'm gonna pray. And T.A. is gonna come up and lead us this morning. So you can follow along with me on the screen. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And Lord, we come to you this morning, and uh, I'd just like to start with the words you've given us in Psalm 63, Lord. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you. Our flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Our lips will praise you. And Lord, I just pray for a time here this morning. I pray that you would first uh, quiet and calm our hearts. Help us to see you more clearly and help us to understand your word. Thank you for your spirit in our hearts that helps us understand your word. And uh, I pray that whatever emotions might uh, bubble up today, that um, we don't allow ourselves to be controlled by those emotions. And I pray that you would simply help us to recognize our emotions and hold them up to the truth of your word. And um, just follow your spirit where you lead. Lord, I thank you for uh, TA. And I pray for him now uh, that he will have clarity of mind and uh, just a, a focus on your word as your spirit leads him um, to deliver your word to us today. And thank you for the time and the prayers he's poured into this message and uh, just for his faithfulness to proclaim your truth. And I pray for each of us who will hear the message today, Lord, that you will just continue to prepare our hearts even as you have through worship, uh, even as you have now. Um, just prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us today. We trust you. Help us to know the depths, uh, the depths of your love and the freedom that we have in you and help us just to um, treasure holiness and following in your footsteps more than anything on this earth. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you today. I hope that all is well. My name is Timothy Atik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here and excited to get to be with you. I want to just start by sharing with the, with the women in the room what happens when guys get together and get outside of town and get around a campfire. Like, I just want, I want to fill you in uh, so you know what your husband or your guy friend is doing when they get around a campfire with other guys. Uh, when that happens, every guy becomes one of three types of people, okay? The, the first person that a guy might become is the sit back and relax guy. The sit back and relax guy is the guy who brings his own chair, 
sets it up, sits down in it, and doesn't get up from it the rest of the evening. Like that fire is someone else's responsibility. So if that fire begins to dwindle down, that guy believes that the night is almost over. And when the fire is out, the night is over, he picks up his chair, he puts it up, he goes to sleep. That's the sit back and relax guy. The second guy is the lighter fluid guy. And so, ladies, you just need to know that, that in every guy, God has hardwired every man with a pyro gene that normally goes dormant around eighth grade. After eighth grade, it goes dormant. But no matter what age you are, when you get around a campfire and someone introduces a bottle of lighter fluid, the response is the same. The first guy will spray, giggle, and pass. Next guy will take it, spray, giggle, and pass. That's just the way it goes. That's the, that's the lighter fluid guy. And then the third guy is the good fire guy. This is the guy that expects every fire he's around to be a Texas A&M University bonfire. And so this is, this is the guy that like shows up with a hatchet on his, on his belt. It's like, where did that come from? It's like, I just thought I might need it. Like, and so... This is the guy that when he senses any weakness in that fire, he just disappears for 30 minutes and reemerges dragging an entire tree. He's like, I thought we might need this. And he chops it up and he, 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 he hardly sits down the whole night because he's consistently putting more logs in the fire, getting down, blowing into the fire, putting more kindling in. That's the good fire guy. So I tell you that because today as we talk about marriage, I want you to think about marriage as a fire. And when you get around the the fire of your marriage, you're going to become one of three types of spouses. You might become the sit back and relax spouse. And that's the spouse that does really doesn't want to do the work to cultivate the fire of your marriage. And so if, that, if, your, if your marriage is going to succeed, something in you believes that your spouse is the one that needs to do more work or make more changes in order for your marriage to be healthy. And if the fire of your marriage dwindles down, in the end, it's over. Or you're going to become the lighter fluid spouse. The lighter fluid spouse is the spouse that is okay with, with their marriage kind of living from from event to event. So it's like Valentine shows up and you kind of spray the fire of your marriage, it flares up and then it just kind of dwindles down. And then you kind of have a big anniversary milestone, whether it's 15 years, 25 years, whatever it is, you spray the fire of your marriage, it flares up and then it kind of begins to dwindle down. And that's just kind of, kind of the rhythm. You just kind of live off of periodic sprays of lighter fluid to the fire of your marriage. Or you're going to be the good, the good fire spouse. You're the cultivator. You're the one that, that you want to do the work that is necessary to have a healthy fire in your marriage. And so when you begin to sense any weakness in that fire, when you begin to sense that it is dwindling, you instinctively take action because you want the fire of your marriage to be healthy. So just cards on the table. You want to be the cultivator. Like, I don't know if it, was, if it was at all unclear. Let's just be clear. You don't want to be the sit back and relax spouse. You don't want to be the lighter fluid spouse. You want to be the good, the good fire spouse. The greatest cultivators in marriage, the greatest cultivators operate with the greatest clarity. 
The greatest cultivators have the greatest clarity on what the ultimate purpose of their marriage truly is. Do you know what the ultimate purpose of your marriage is if you're married? And if you're single, do you know what the ultimate purpose of marriage is if that's something that you are looking forward to or hoping to experience? The ultimate purpose of your marriage and my marriage is to put the glory of God on display to the rest of the world. What's the glory of God? The glory of God is everything praiseworthy about God. It is his love and grace and kindness and goodness and forgiveness. It, that is the glory of God. And marriage exists to put the glory of God on display to the rest of the world. That's not my opinion. That's just how the, the Bible leads us. If you look at where marriage is created, where is it created? On page two, Genesis chapter two. Listen to what it says in verse 24. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Here's what I love. This shows us just how, just how amped up God is about marriage. Like he's talking to the first two human beings and he's like, hey guys, here's the deal. Uh, technically, you don't even have all the ingredients yet to make this work because a man's gonna leave his father and his mother, but there's only two of you. There are no mothers and fathers right now. Like you don't even know what that is. You're about to become the first, but I, I haven't even unlocked all of the ingredients to do this, but I, it's like I can't hold it in. I'm just gonna tell you now about one of my greatest gifts to creation, which is, which is marriage. And what happens in marriage is a husband and a wife come together and it says that they become one flesh. That, that's sex, two becoming one physically, but, but the intention is not just physical oneness, it's God has intended marriage to be this union between a man and a woman where they become emotionally, spiritually, and physically one. And so when you stand on the altar and you say, I do, you need to understand that in God's eyes, you are no longer two separate people from different families. You are actually one. You are two equal people who become one. What does that point us to? That points us to the triune nature of God. A marriage is actually the greatest example or analogy that we have to understand a triune God, that God is three co-equal, co-eternal persons that exist in one essence. We try and come up with illustrations like the apple or water, but all of those illustrations break down and have major theologically incorrect problems with them. And yet marriage is two equal people becoming one in essence. So what does that show us? It shows us that God created marriage to show himself to the world. That's what marriage does is it displays God. But then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 gives us possibly the most thorough teaching in one passage on marriage in the Bible. And he actually talks about Genesis chapter 2. But what does he tell us in Ephesians chapter 5? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this, this shows us that marriage doesn't just exist to show us the relational aspect of God, that he's three in one, but marriage exists to show Christ's love for his bride, which is the church, us, the people of God. 
And so that's what marriage exists to do. It exists to display the glory of God to an unbelieving world. And so all eyes on me, just so that we're all on the same page, the ultimate purpose of your marriage is not your happiness. That's not the ultimate purpose of your marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is not companionship. It's not so that you have someone to do life with so that you're not lonely. That's not the ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is not for young Christian men and women to be able to have sex without guilt. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the glory of God on display to the rest of of the world. The, the greatest cultivators operate with the greatest clarity on their ultimate purpose. And so what Paul is going to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is he is going to encourage us to do two things so that we can fulfill the purpose of our marriage. And so Jackie Hale Perry puts it this way, marriage is a creation of God for the glory of God so the world can get a picture of the gospel of God. So if you're going to fulfill the purpose of your marriage then 1 Corinthians 7 is going to encourage us to do two things. Number one, safeguard your marriage. And number two, stay in your marriage. Okay? Safeguard your marriage and stay in your marriage. God cares deeply about your marriage. And Watermark has a very high view of marriage because marriage exists to put the glory of God on display. So here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is first going to start off by encouraging us to safeguard our marriages. So just to be clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not exhaustive on instructing us on how to safeguard our marriage. Paul is actually only talking about the importance of having sex in your marriage to safeguard your marriage, okay? And so here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. He says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So in verse 1, you see quotation marks. The reason that there are quotation marks is because Paul is simply restating what the people in Corinth wrote to him in a letter. So this is a response to a letter that the people in Corinth wrote uh, just expressing their views on sex and marriage. And what was their understanding? Their understanding was that it was good for a husband and wife not to have sex with one another. We talked about it last week, but this incorrect theology had emerged in the church in Corinth where people began to believe that, that sex in marriage was only to be used for the purpose of procreation, okay? Sex and marriage was not intended for sexual pleasure. And so people were swinging one of two directions. Some people swung towards hedonism. So they would have sex and marriage for the purpose of procreation, and then they would step out of sight of marriage and have sex with prostitutes for the purpose of pleasure. Other people swung towards asceticism, and it was the thought that Sex is never intended for pleasure, only for procreation. So you had these people who were having sex just to get pregnant, and then they were withholding from one another the rest of the time, and they thought that that was a spiritually good thing to do. And so Paul is going to address that. Here's what he says in verse 2. 
He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what you need to understand is Paul's wording is talking about sex. Paul is saying, if you want to safeguard your marriage, because there will be temptation in your marriage to step outside of your marriage to experience sexual pleasure, to guard your marriage, it is good and right for you to have sex with one another. When you look at marriage, the creation of marriage, it says that the man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's, that's sex. And so a God-glorifying marriage is a marriage that has sex regularly. Now a bunch of husbands finally just tuned in. They're like, man, I, uh, I really like this church. You know, maybe we should become members here. This, this, this church just teaches the Bible, and that's a really important thing. Welcome to the conversation. But this is, this is Paul just saying, it is important for a husband and a wife, it is good and right and healthy, and it safeguards the marriage, for a husband and wife to have sex regularly. Now, I want you to notice the wording. I didn't say daily. I didn't even say weekly. I just said regularly. And the reason that I said regularly is because it will look different. It, it will look different for each marriage. Regularly is simply the opposite of occasionally or periodically. It means that sex is important enough in your marriage that it happens with some consistency. So if you want to safeguard your marriage, I want to encourage you to move from occasionally to regularly. And the reason that I say that is because a sexual desire in marriage is God-given. It is God-given. But because there will be sexual desire, we do have an enemy that will seek, that will seek to distract us and pull us away from our marriage to fulfill those desires in other ways. And so it is good and right for a husband and wife to have sex regularly in order to safeguard the marriage. And so I tell you this just to say, if you find yourself in a place where you and your spouse are having sex less and less, if the period of time between moments of physical intimacy is getting longer, then I would consider that at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag. And it, it's good for you to ask the question, are we unnecessarily cracking the door open to sexual temptation making its way into our marriage? So if you want to safeguard the marriage, move from occasionally to regularly. Also, I want to encourage you to realize your responsibility in your marriage. Realize your responsibility in marriage. The reason I say that is simply because of what the Bible says. Look at verse 3. Look at what Paul says. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Here's, here's what I love about this text, is that it is not a man-centric text. The text doesn't make the guy the sexual being in marriage, and the wife just exists to fulfill her husband's sexual desires. No. Paul is basically saying, hey, the wife has sexual needs, and the husband has a responsibility to meet those needs. 
The husband has sexual needs and the wife has a responsibility to meet those needs. When he talks about giving to one another their conjugal rights, listen to how another translation puts it. It says a husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. It's talking about responsibility. Having sex with your spouse is actually a God-given responsibility. So if you are withholding sex from your spouse, you are not fulfilling one of your God-given responsibilities in marriage. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 4. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh, great. Here we go. But then look, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see the the complete equality here. And so in this day and time, if you were to hear the man has authority over the woman's body, everyone in, in this culture that Paul is preaching to, everyone would be like, of course he does. Of course he does. Because he has authority not just over his wife's body, he has authority over every body in his household. But Paul says something so counterculture. He's like, nope. It's not just that the guy has authority over his wife's body. The wife, who in his culture would often be much younger than the husband, the wife has authority over the man's body as well. So listen to what Paul is saying. He is saying that you, with your body, have a responsibility to fulfill your spouse's sexual needs. To not have sex with your spouse is to not fulfill one of your God-given responsibilities in marriage. And we don't like this language. Like something in his language bothers us because the culture we live in is a culture that promotes sexual freedom. So like We want to believe that we should be completely free and nobody should have any say over what we do or don't do sexually. And that's just not true because we found out last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What does Paul say? He says, your body is not your own. It was bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So first and foremost, who has authority over your body? Not you, Jesus Christ. So we live fully surrendered to him. But then when you made a choice to get married, you were an individual, and then you became one with another individual. And when you made that choice to get married, your spouse just became your number one opportunity to practice Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So husbands, you have a duty to your wife, and wives, you have a duty to your husband. Now, I do just want to acknowledge, before we move on, it's important to realize that that Paul is calling the married people in the room to give of themselves to their spouse. But Paul at no point is giving anyone the right to demand from their spouse. So do not use this message as a weapon in your marriage. That is not what it's for. Okay? If you want to 
safeguard your marriage, I do want to encourage you, realize your responsibility. And then I also want to encourage you to communicate with one another with your words. Communicate with your words. You ever said that to your kids? Use your words. Like, I'm not trying to be demeaning, but hey, people, use your words. Use your words in your marriage. Like we, we have to communicate clearly with one another about sex. And the reason I say that is because of what Paul says in verse 5. Look at what he says. He says, do not deprive one another. That word deprive in the Greek, it means to rob or to steal. So when we think about cheating our spouse, we think about cheating on them, going outside the marriage and having an affair. But Paul is saying there's actually another way to cheat your spouse. It is to withhold sex from them. That's a form of cheating your spouse. Now, Why might we deprive one another of sex? The reason that you might deprive yourself of, you deprive your spouse of sex is because there's some frustration or hurt or insecurity with your spouse. And if that's the case, one of the best things you can do is simply communicate about that with your spouse. But often what we want to do is we communicate non-verbally. We communicate by withholding sex instead of simply having the conversation and addressing the issue. We want to communicate with our words. That's why Paul says, verse 5, do not deprive one another, watch this, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That, that word agreement in the Greek, it literally means with a common voice. So how do you agree on not having sex? You talk about it. So Paul is saying, The only reason to not have sex on a regular basis is because the two of you are so synced up and you're so on the same page that you've talked about it and y'all have decided, hey, we're going to take a break from having sex for a period of time. And the only reason you would do that, because I know a lot of people in this room, specifically the guys are like, I don't get it. Like, why would that ever be a thing? Like, why would that, why would you, I don't understand. Why would we make that decision? And please don't make that decision. Um, he tells us why. He says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So now we're going to find out who's really spiritual in this room. Because Paul is like, the only reason that you don't have sex regularly is because the two of you are so focused spiritually that you decide together to fast from sex for a period of time because to stop and have sex would distract you both from pursuing Jesus for something significant going on in your life. But then look at how he finishes that verse. He says, but then come together again. He's saying, don't Don't fast from sex for too long. Fast, he says, come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying safeguard, safeguard your marriage. Communicate with one another. Communication brings clarity. Clarity drives out insecurity. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you six questions, and I want to ask the husband to either take a screenshot of these questions or write them down. And husbands, I want to encourage you to initiate a conversation with your wife. She knows it's coming because 
This is from one of the pastors at the church encouraging you to do this this week, but to just start a conversation about sex this week. And here's the questions. Let's just walk through them. Here's the first one. In your opinion, what is realistic and what is a realistic and helpful frequency of sex? So notice the wording. What's, what's realistic? So you need to take into account the stage of life you're in. Like if you've got a bunch of like small kids that are just constantly hanging around on you and you're like, we should have sex every day. No, you shouldn't. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's unrealistic. Like you, need to, you just need to be realistic about the season of life that you're in. You need to figure out what is realistic, but also ask the question, what's helpful? What's helpful? Here's what I mean by what's helpful. It's good for you to articulate to your spouse, okay, when we go this amount of time, that is when something in me begins to get, like, frustrated. Like, where is that? Communicate that. And this is where y'all might be in different places one of you might say, you know what, after three weeks. And the other is like, after three days. And it's like, oh, that, okay, that's different. And that's where, that's where you compromise. One person shouldn't win. Like, you should never decide, but I like three weeks, so it's going to be three weeks. No, because you have a responsibility. That doesn't mean that you acquiesce to three days. It just means that the two of you come to the table and you compromise with one another. Second question, when we do have sex, what is most enjoyable and satisfying to you? It's a good, good thing to know. Number three, are there any hurts or frustrations in our marriage that would hinder you from wanting to have sex? Any frustrations or hurts? I remember talking to a friend, and he just said that there was a season where his wife lost all desire for him sexually. And it was because he had made an idol out of his work. And he gave all of his time, attention, and affection to his job. And she felt neglected. And it took away all of her desire for him. And God has restored that desire. Number four, do you have any insecurities regarding sex that would be helpful for me to know? Number five, is there anything I need to start doing to help us cultivate a healthier sex life? So this might be learning to speak your spouse's love language. It might mean, guys, initiating more dates with your wife. This might mean more non-sexual touch. So that might mean holding hands more, putting your arm around each other, hugging more when you walk in the door, sitting next to each other on the couch instead of on opposite sides of the couch. It, it might mean starting to do that. And, and this one I want to be really careful with, but I still want to say it. It might one thing that you might need to start doing is, is just taking better care of your body. And so let me just speak to the guys real quick. So I remember when I was in college, some of my guy friends began to get engaged and married. And so the guys who were getting married, they would talk about the LGN diet. The LGN diet, it stood for the look good naked diet. And so that's what they would get on when they got engaged in in. The reason I even bring that up is that it showed intentionality. It was like, you know what? I, I want to steward my body for the benefit of my spouse. So that was kind of the honeymoon bod. But then after years passed by, you've got the dad bod. 
And so I just wonder, like, if there's, if there's somewhere in between, what I'm talking about is just an intentionality. It's an intentionality to say, you know what, I want to cultivate my body to glorify God and, and just for the enjoyment of my spouse, okay? And then number six, is there anything I need to stop doing to help us cultivate a healthier sex life? So you might need to stop bringing your phone to bed. Or you might stop sitting in front of the TV for a couple hours at night because it just drains all your energy. What do you need to stop? We want to safeguard our marriages, okay? You want to be a cultivator? Then Paul's message to you is safeguard your marriage, okay? Now, in verses 6 through 9, Paul speaks to those who are single. We're not going to address those verses today because next week is is a message straight to the heart of the single people in the room. So come back next week for that. And then in verse 10, Paul pivots and begins to talk about divorce. Now, this feels like a major swerve to go from sex and marriage to divorce. It feels like two totally different topics, but it's not. It's it's not at all, because what's the first thing to go when, when marriage is struggling? It's the physical aspect. It's the first thing to go. So if you're here and you're married, in the first point, safeguarding your marriage, when we talked about sex inside of marriage, if everything that we just said feels either irrelevant or impossible to you, then that gives urgency to the second point, which is this. If you want to fulfill the the purpose for which your marriage exists, which is to display the glory of God. If you want to be a cultivator in marriage, then make a commitment to stay in your marriage. So we want to safeguard our marriages, and we want to stay in our marriages. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says this, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. That's interesting. What's Paul mean when he says, it's not I, but the Lord? Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, okay, at at this moment, God's, this is from God. But if I'm just talking, it's just from me. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul is doing is he's talking about the historical Jesus. That Jesus, during his earthly ministry, gave commands about divorce. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. So when Paul says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, he's talking about the Lord when he was on earth, gave a command. Paul is simply picking up that command and teaching it to his friends in Corinth. What's the command? The wife should not separate from her husband. That word separate is synonymous with divorce. The wife should not divorce her husband. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And so what's the command from God through Paul to us? Hey, don't get divorced. Wives, don't divorce your husbands. Husbands, don't don't divorce your wives. For the majority of the marriages in the room, that's all you need to hear. That's it. Like, that's, that's the command. The decision that you have to make is whether you're going to read God's word and live it out or not. Here's the reality. You can go find someone in this world who will tell you what you want to hear. 
You can. You can find a blogger or an author. You can find a spiritual leader in this world who will tell you what you want to hear, which is that it's okay for you to divorce your husband or your wife for any reason. And Paul is saying, no, here's the command. Don't divorce your spouse. So you just have to decide if you're going to read the word of God, take it at its word, and live it out or not. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you want to stay in your marriage, then my encouragement to you is to begin to believe that divorce isn't an option for your marriage. Like that's just a mental shift where you just begin to believe, hey, I'm stuck. Like this is it. This is, this is the marriage that I will be in. And so marriage or divorce is off the table. It's, it's off the table. Ben Rector wrote a song called Note to Self, and I love the wording. He says, note to self, keep choosing her. Talking about his wife, keep choosing your wife. Keep choosing her. She's yours and wonderful and forever is a long time to be sad. So I love it because what he's saying is he's saying you have a choice, effort or sadness. And if it's a decision between effort and sadness, he's saying I choose effort. And so there's just something about cultivating your marriage is something about glorifying God by, by making a decision. Divorce is not an option for us because when you make that decision, you know what it does? It increases the value of having community in your life because you will have other people who can encourage you and sharpen you and call you out when you make the wrong decision in your marriage. You can have community encourage you. It raises the value of doing premarital counseling before you get married because you before you get into marriage, because you want to do it right. It raises the value of marriage counseling, because if, you, if you're struggling and you go to your community group, and that still doesn't work, and at some point you have to go to marriage counseling, like you do it, you make the choice, because why? You've decided divorce isn't an option. Now I want you to look back real quick at what Paul said in verse 11. He did say this. He said, but if she, talking about the wife, but if she does, meaning if she divorces her husband, he says she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What is Paul saying there? Our tendency is to read that and believe that Paul is saying that if you're unhappy in your marriage, you have two options. You can either divorce your spouse and just remain single or you can be you can get divorced but then get reconciled to your husband he's saying we, our tendency is to read that and say that being divorced and just remaining single is just as viable of an option as being divorced and then choosing to get reconciled and that's not what paul is saying here is what paul is saying okay what he's saying is, hey, if you choose to get divorced, you need to understand that you have bypassed Jesus' command. Okay, Jesus has commanded us to not get divorced. If you choose to get divorced, if you have disregarded Jesus' command, that's sin. And if you choose to disregard his command and you get divorced, then then don't believe that there's ever a time where you are freed up to remarry someone else. That's why he says remain single. Because you're, you're not freed up to remarry. That's what Paul is saying. 
Like if you choose to disregard Jesus' command, then you're not freed up, remain single. Or else, he says, be reconciled. Like if you want to be married, there's your option. You get reconciled to, to your spouse. Okay? You want to stay in your marriage. You don't just make the decision that divorce isn't an option, but you do this. You pursue what is most glorifying, not what is most relieving. Okay, you pursue what is most glorifying to God, not what is most relieving to you. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I'm not the Lord. Now, this is another occasion where Paul is not saying, hey, this isn't God talking. This is just Paul's opinion time. No, what he's saying is uh, the historical Jesus, when he was on earth, he did not speak specifically to the situation of a believer and an unbeliever being married and possibly divorcing. So Paul is saying, because Jesus, when he was on earth, didn't address it specifically, I'm going to with the authority of God as one of his apostles. So this is still God through Paul. He says, to the rest I say, I'm not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so what Paul is, what Paul is addressing is this idea in the church in Corinth where believers thought that they needed to divorce their spouses if they were unbelievers because they thought to have sex with an unbeliever would defile them. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 you, you actually, it is glorifying to God for you to stay in the marriage. That doesn't mean that it is glorifying to God for an unbeliever and a believer to choose to get married. But what Paul is saying is if you find yourself in marriage, that marriage needs to stay intact. It is God's desire for you to stay in that marriage. So the fact that someone is un, an unbeliever is not, in God's eyes, it's not a legitimate reason to, to pursue a divorce. And Paul tells us why in verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What Paul is not saying is that if a believer marries an unbeliever, then that unbeliever automatically gets saved. What he is saying is that somehow that marriage, because of the believer that's in it, it becomes sacred space. And that marriage still somehow has an ability to glorify God. And the kids within that marriage should be treated as kids that come out of a marriage of two believers because God can do something in that marriage. And that unbelieving spouse has an opportunity that other unbelievers don't to get to see the gospel lived out on a daily basis. And they get put in situations to hear the gospel more frequently than other unbelievers in the world. And so I just remember, I remember a friend when I lived in Austin. I remember this friend from church who married an unbeliever and, 
and their marriage, it was so sweet the, to watch the way that she interacted with her husband who wasn't a believer. He didn't really want to have anything to do with Christianity. And yet, they were, they were close and they were, their friendship was so strong and they loved one another so much. And yet, she experienced the sadness of praying for her husband instead of praying with her husband. And yet she, and yet she was faithful and committed to the marriage. Why? Because that is what was most glorifying to God. Verse 15, Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So this is a really important one. If you're tuned out, please tune in because this is extremely important. What Paul is talking about is a situation where a believer is married uh, to an unbeliever, married to someone who is saying, I do not know Jesus Christ, I do not look to Jesus Christ for salvation, and I want out of this marriage. Paul is addressing a situation where there's a believer who is faithfully loving that unbeliever with the love of Jesus Christ is committed to the marriage, wants to be in the marriage, wants that spouse to know Jesus, and is loving that spouse with the love of Christ, and yet that unbelieving spouse is saying, I insist on a divorce. Paul is saying in that situation, hey, it's not, it's not sin for you as the unbeliever to give that spouse what he or she is insisting on, which is divorce. Like, you don't need to carry around shame that you are not able to rescue the marriage when your unbelieving spouse is bent on divorce. That's what he's saying. Now, the reason that we need to be clear on this is because if, 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 if a spouse leaves another spouse... There are times where the spouse that gets left wants to automatically point the finger and say, well, he or she was never a believer in the first place. Even though that spouse has been in the church for years, has faithfully walked in community, has shared the gospel with other people, has said that he or she believes the gospel, we need to be careful not to automatically jump to the conclusion that they are an unbeliever. This is why it's so important to walk with community in the most toughest in the toughest situations so that others can help you see clearly. And then Paul finishes the section in verse 16. He says, "For how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife?" It's easy to hear that and think that there's a negative leaning to it. But when you read commentators, it should be interpreted positively. Listen to how the NLT puts it. It says, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So what is Paul ultimately saying? He's saying the sacrifice of staying with someone who is not a believer is worth it. Because what possibility is there, the possibility that they might come to know Jesus. That is what is most glorifying to the Lord. Okay. So, what do, we, what do we do with all this? Okay, before we move on to application, 
I just want to acknowledge that there are a couple situations that Paul does not address in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's, it's abuse and infidelity. So let me just speak to those two things really quick, okay? If you are being abused, then let me just encourage you to speak up immediately. Like, please let the church know, because we have pastoral teams that can jump in immediately to protect the victim and hold the abuser accountable. The first step is not divorce. The first step is your safety, okay? And then when it comes to infidelity, there's a question mark because Jesus says in one of the Gospels that, um, that people think that it's possible to divorce because of sexual immorality in the marriage. So let me just say this. That the question is, what is God's best? What, what would glorify God most? If marriage exists to put the glory of God on display, then think about our story. What is our story? Our story is that when we were unfaithful to God, he was faithful to us. Okay, each of us has turned to his own way in sin. Each one of us has taken God's gifts and turned them into God's. We have worshiped other people. We have worshiped other things instead of worshiping God. And yet, Romans 5 eight, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That we were faithless, and yet God was faithful. That's, that's the gospel. So if, if there's infidelity in the marriage, and you stay in that marriage, and we have people at this church, we have people on staff, and that is their story, that even in the midst of infidelity, they've stayed in the marriage, and it has put the glory of God on display. Because Jesus Christ has come and he's reconciled us to the Father, even in the midst of our infidelity to, to him. Even in the midst of how difficult that would be. That would be God's best, and so I just encourage you to consider that. Okay, so what, what do we do with all this? I, I just want to speak to different individuals in the room. Number one, may we all remember the gospel. May we all remember the gospel, that when we were faithless, God was faithful. God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe some of you this morning, that is making sense for the first time. Like for the first time, you're realizing that God has chased you, he has pursued you, even in your rebellion against him. Even in your unfaithfulness to him, he has chased you down. And today, he is calling you into a relationship with him. Remember the gospel. Now, if you're married, if your marriage is on the doorstep of divorce, like if you're here and you're thinking about filing papers, if you, if you feel like the next step for you is divorce, here's what I want to ask you to decide in your heart right now. Just as I'm talking, I want to ask you to consider pushing pause in your heart. And even in this moment, here's what I want to invite you to pray. I'm going to put a prayer on the screen. And here's what I want to invite you to pray. Even as I'm speaking, to pray this, God, I, I want a divorce, but I want to want what you want. Did you see that? I want to want. God, I don't want what you want, but I want to want what you want. Just because I can't see a path forward doesn't mean you can't. 
and I will trust you. If you're in here and you've gotten a divorce and you have not gotten remarried, then I want to encourage you to pray that God would give you the courage to take a step. Not 10 steps, but one step. What's that step? That step is that you are praying and asking God to give you the courage to talk to your community group, to ask your community group to begin praying that God would move and work in your heart and give you the courage that you need to take another step, to possibly then reach out to your former spouse and let him or her know what you are beginning to pray about, which is reconciliation. And then if you have been divorced and you have gotten remarried, let me just be clear, the answer is not for you to divorce your current spouse to then be reconciled to your former spouse. Okay? But here's what I do want to encourage you to do. Three things, and I hope you hear all of them. And it might be tough to hear. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is for you and your spouse to sit together and acknowledge together that the decision that you made to get married was potentially not God's best. And that you might sit together and ask God's forgiveness and experience his grace for taking a step that you were not free to take. Number two is for the two of you to decide that divorce will never be an option for your marriage. And then number three, walk in confidence. Walk in confidence that God is for your marriage and God wants to use your remarriage to put his glory on display to an unbelieving world. And then finally, if you're planning to get married, let me just encourage you, don't rush marriage. And when you stand on the altar, know that your vows, when you say till death, that isn't just a ritual that we do in America. That is a commitment that you are making with one another before God. And so take it seriously. Who are you going to be in your marriage? Are you going to be the sit back and relax spouse, the lighter fluid spouse, or the good fire spouse? My encouragement to you, be a cultivator. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is, this is a heavy morning, and yet your word is good, and your, you make known to us, us the path of life. And so I just thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient in this moment, and your spirit gives us everything we need to move forward in the most God-honoring way. Lord, I pray that the marriages of Watermark Community Church would put your glory on display for the rest of the world. Lord, I pray that there would be people in this room who are currently divorced, but a day is coming where they're going to be reconciled to their spouse. Lord, I pray for the marriages in the room right now that are literally one step away from divorce. I pray that those marriages would, that, that divorce would be put on hold and that option would be taken off the table and that great healing would come. Lord, we love you, God, but we need you. And we just thank you that you are sufficient for us. In Jesus' name, amen.